Welcome to The Rock Podcast. Every letter has an intended purpose, and in this study, Paul reveals his. The purpose of his letter to Timothy was to explain how the Lord wants his church to operate. What an invaluable source of guidance for God's people throughout the ages. Here now is Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The Mystery of Godliness. Alrighty, uh, we are making our way through the pastoral epistles. They're called Pastoral epistles. Epistle is a fancy word for a letter. Pastoral because First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the letter to Titus has a lot of pastoral information. How to run the church, how to organize the church, how to qualify leaders. And so uh, that is why it's categorized, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus as pastoral epistles. And we find ourselves in chapter 3 of the first letter, to Timothy. We're going to pick up because we left a little dangling paragraph that's loaded with a lot of valuable insights. We're going to take a look at that little paragraph uh, today. So put your finger there and that's where we're headed. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would quiet our hearts and still our minds and help us to focus at the great task uh, before us, to let the Holy Spirit use the written word in a way that impacts us, corrects us, comforts us, instructs us, Uh, Lord, because it's your word that brings life. This didn't have its origin in any man, but through the Holy Spirit, we have the word, the God-breathed word sent to save us, and so, Lord, there... There's a reason for every person here today because nothing is an accident with you. And so let us hear, let us be impacted and the full potential of why you put this hour together. May it be accomplished with our cooperation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, every home has a code of behavior, whether that's spoken or unspoken, you know, standards for how the household functions, you know, and that can be clear right up front, right at the front door. You'll see a sign like many families do, please no shoes, because uh, they have a no shoe in the house policy, which I think is a great idea, having been to Japan for four years. Uh, I think that just makes a lot of sense. Uh, There are other uh, rules of the house uh, you'd see right at the front door. Uh, Please don't ring the bell between these hours because in this house, we have a baby and in this house, it's important that they don't cry during their nap time or they are interrupted, I should say. Uh, And of course, for those who live in the household, though we don't give it too much thought, Uh, There exists a daily set routine, shared responsibilities, distinction in roles, division of labor, general schedules, an expected code of behavior that kind of keeps everybody and everything moving smoothly and effectively for the health and well-being of the family, right? Well, who decides uh, all of that, how the home should be run? Well... The ones whose house it is, right? They set the standards. We call them head of household, right? Uh, This is how people should behave in my home. This is what we expect. Very interesting to me that the Lord calls, both in the Old Testament and the New, the gathering together of his people. He calls the local church his home. And as we read in the psalm this morning, the house of the Lord. Old Testament and New, it's a way to describe the people of the Lord and his presence among us. The church is his household. Now, as head of household, 
He decides how the home should be run. He's the father, we are the family, the children, uh, and he calls the shots. And so he establishes a code of behavior, and that code is revealed in the scriptures, how God, head of household, wants things to run and operate in his house. Uh, Much for the same reasons we do it, you know, so that everybody and everything under his roof would be according to the, the health and the well-being and the purposes for that family. So that's exactly what you have in front of you this morning in the letter of First Timothy. And here at the end of chapter 3, uh, just as I said, there are just a few verses there. The last three verses pack uh, a powerful punch. And we're going to just park there and just kind of uh, reflect upon them. And now, uh, verses 14 and 15 are a powerful explanation. Paul gives the purpose for writing the letter. And when you have a purpose given for the letter, which is the scripture, you'll find closely connected the purpose for your life. And so we, we take a look, we're going to take a look at that. And that is already on the screen is, is the text that begins uh, this morning at verses 14 and 15. Now, we won't end there because there's one dangling verse left, verse 16, and that is an actual hymn from the early church that Paul's going to use to kind of bring all of his thoughts together, and so it's going to be wonderful. So the second point will be the wonderful inspiration, which will be the reason for serving in verse 16. But now, first, to the purpose of the letter of 1 Timothy. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you, Paul speaking to Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we're going to leave that up there just to reflect on this uh, for this section of the Bible study. And so... Of course, you know the background of what led to this letter. The church at Ephesus was in disarray, needed to be restored. God's house there in Ephesus was a mess. And really, the ones to blame are the ones in charge, the leaders. They went sideways. The pastors were deceived away from the gospel. In fact, the way it's quoted in 1 Timothy is that these men had wandered from the truth and they were robbed of that truth. And so Paul had predicted it. The, the word of the Lord came to him 10 years earlier with these same guys. He planted that church or he helped plant that church originally. And in leaving, you'll recall on the beaches there, the shores of the Mediterranean, as he bid those elders, pastors, overseers, same word, uh, farewell, he said, the Holy Spirit has shown me something. That men from this very group are going to rise up. And I, I have it here. They're going to, from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Well, after 10 years, the day, sadly, had arrived. And uh, these leaders became morally corrupt and theologically compromised. Now, it probably happened the opposite way because you are theologically compromised and then the bad behavior comes because as a man is, so is he, You know, Proverbs, what is that, 23 and verse 7, just in the King James, just dynamite. Listen, you know, it's the rudder. This is the rudder. And and it's the control command center, right? And so once that is compromised, the way you think about God and the gospel, if that's distorted in any way, you will live a distorted life. And that's exactly what happened at Ephesus The church was coming apart at the seams. There was fighting and chaos and hurt feelings. And uh, because these these clowns, I'm sorry, I have no respect for uh, men who will stumble the people of God and hinder God's work. Uh, They were causing all of this chaos. Uh, They were working up for the other side, you know, whether they knew that or not. But uh, nothing in the church was operating the way it should be. And so the Lord sent the Apostle Paul, 
that church needed the authority of an apostolic visit uh, for him to come in and set things straight. And so he brought along with him Timothy, you'll recall. And right away, he started to straighten things out. Uh, Paul calls the ringleaders out and asks them to leave the church. Now, uh, he names them. He names names. There'll be six names. These are guys they all knew. They all knew them. They're guys in the church. And they're named publicly uh, because they're dangerous. And they were the source of the problem, right? And now everybody at Ephesus would know these guys are, are teaching error. Avoid them, right? And now everybody at Ephesus knew who that was. And now everybody in the world knows who was causing trouble there. Now some people say to me, Pastor Ross, it, it really makes me uncomfortable when you will say negative things about other men's ministries uh, and by naming them, you name the church or you name the person. And once in a while I do that. I don't do that a lot, but uh, when I do, inevitably somebody will come up and say, why can't you just preach the gospel and leave that to God? Well, here's why. It's biblical if there is a teaching that's available to you at the bookstore and it's popular and it's being recommended by evangelical Christians and I know that it's false teaching, then I'm held accountable to God to point that out, name the author and the book or the ministry and say, you know what? For these reasons, and let me show you in the Bible why I'm making that call, that you, you should be, avoid that. That person who tells me, I'm a little uncomfortable and I don't understand why you do that, I say to them, I will stand before God in a different way than you will. I will be held to a stricter measure than you because I'm a teacher. James chapter 3 says, not, uh, really consider whether or not you want to stand up on a platform, open a Bible and teach because you will be judged stricter than everybody else. Hebrews chapter 13 tells me, if you want to be a spiritual leader, you will give an account to God for the way you shepherded his blood-bought people. Sir, um, that is not your destiny, but that is my destiny and my responsibility. So if I'm aware of somebody, I don't think it's smart to just always have your guns ready to just pow-pow everything, all the little things, the way that we all differ, and we all do differ. But if you're going to start talking about there's no existence of hell as an evangelical Christian, and you're going to start telling uh, Christians in your church, that, hey, don't worry, God's love wins out, all right, to quote his book there. The gospel implodes. And Rob Bell, who has now joined the forces of Oprah Winfrey in her tour to to reach the nation, leaves an evangelical church with now Christian New Age universalism that he's preaching. So so Paul says, watch out for Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, Phygelus, and Hermogenes. Watch out for them. Now, you know, it takes no joy. It's no joy to do that. For, for Paul, he says it with tears. Or for me, right? But I'm going to stand before that face on that day. And as much as it depended on me, give an account. I mean, everybody has responsibilities. But as for my part in it, then I'll be able to uh, be okay, Right? So let me show you what I'm talking about. In Romans chapter uh, 16 and verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you've learned. Keep away from them. Watch out for them. All right. King James has it even better. The new King James, I should say. Now I urge you, brethren... Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine just means teaching the gospel, which you've learned, and avoid them. The King James has marked those who cause division. That's the sense of note, all right? And so 
That's why pastors have to do that. That's why Paul had to do it, right? And so that's the, the thinking behind it is the responsibility to keep Christians from uh, false teaching. Jesus is the one who said, hey, in the last days, uh, many false teachers will arise. They will come to you disguised in sheep's clothing. So they're going to look and sound absolutely fantastic. But inside, God's words, uh, ravenous wolves. And so it's just an obligation that comes with the territory. Uh, he calls them out, Paul does. He exposes the lies, and then he removes them from the church. And then uh, what, I, what I like about it is it's not just stopping the problem, removing the bad guys. You've got to reconnect with the truth. So the remedy from the Holy Spirit for people who have been inundated with false teaching is massive doses of the gospel truth. Word of God, word of God, word of God. And that's what he's been telling Timothy to do. Now, once there was a semblance of, uh, uh, you can put the, the verse back up. Thank you. Once there was a semblance of order, all right, Paul had a pressing ministerial obligation up in what was called Macedonia. Who is up in Macedonia? The Philippians, the Bereans, the Thessalonians. So he left Timothy at Ephesus, which is in central Turkey, and he went up to see them. And while he was up there, he, he realized this is more involved. God wants me to stay here. I'm not going right back. Now, poor Timothy, he's a young man. He's about 33 years old. And he's left to kind of put together the pieces, right? So Paul's going to sleep at night. And he's thinking, oh, man, I hope he does this. And I hope he says this. And, and oh, they need to fix that. And they need to, right? And so the Holy Spirit prompts Paul to write the letter. And he says, hey, he says, if I, I want to come back to Ephesus soon. And I'm writing to you uh, with these instructions. If I'm delayed, and he is permanently. He will be rearrested and slammed in prison in Rome where he will die and be martyred, where he will write 2 Timothy. It's the end for him. Now, had he left Ephesus and said, hey, this is so important, I'm just going to rush through whatever God wants me to do here in Philippi, and I'm going to go back to Ephesus, guess what? No 1 Timothy. No 2 Timothy. And you know what? By the way, while I'm thinking about it, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good. Thank you, false prophets. Thank you, false teachers. Because God used the false teaching at that church to write 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And, And for the ages, pastors and churches and God's people have a guide. This is how a healthy church looks. This is how you qualify leaders. This is the truth of the gospel. And we would not have any of that if not for some false teachers. And so God has a way of not, using, not wasting anything. Romans 8, 28, causing all things to work together. Uh, so here is the thesis statement that you're looking at. He says, listen, if I have to stay longer here at least you'll know how God wants his church to function. You'll know what a healthy church looks like uh, from God's perspective because it's his, the church of the living God. You see that? He's head of household. Pastors aren't free to just put in and implement anything that they want. The church has to mirror and reflect uh, the, the prerequisites, the requirements of head of household. He, what did he say to Peter, our Lord Jesus? He said, who do people say that I am? And Peter rattled off the list. And they said, Peter, but what do you think? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, Peter, that's it, man. God the Father revealed that to you, and on that confession, that will be the foundation of which I will build my church head of household. The Lord Christ is the head of the body or the fellowship of believers. And that, that really is, takes a great weight off of pastors, really. I mean, in one sense, there's a grave responsibility. But in another, it's not my job to grow the church or, or, or to come up with some truths or principles or protocols. My job is to be the under-shepherd of 
the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 25, it says, Jesus is the great shepherd, all caps, pastor. Jesus is your pastor. He's my pastor. And under him are God's under shepherds and overseers who manage the church according to how he wants it. Ephesians 1.14, just straight up, I love it. Uh, the church is God's own possession. That's pretty clear, right? And then bought by his own blood, Acts 20, 28. He says, not only did I create them, no one, no, no, uh, not only, <laughs> not only did I create them, but I bought them, I ransomed them with my own blood. They belong to me. Church is my idea. It's my truth. It's my gospel. They're my people. They belong to me, Right? That is why when he goes into the house where things are a mess, where the guys representing him are abusing people and misrepresenting him, uh, he gets a little testy, shall we say. Uh, You'll remember in the beginning of his ministry and at the end, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't like what he sees the corrupt leaders, these men, these greedy men, you know, people bring in their offerings. They're saying, oh, this offering. Oh, I see a little, a little blemish here. You'll have to, no, you can't use this lamb. You'll have to use the, the uh, approved lamb. And it happens to be four times the price of an ordinary lamb because we had to inspect it. So Jesus went to those tables and he flipped them over. He made a whip out of ropes and cords and he drove those guys out of the temple. And what did he say? My house, my house will be called the house of prayer where people meet God. And then he's taking a quote from Isaiah. Actually, Jesus, the expanded uh, verse of that is my house shall be a uh, a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah chapter 56. He's saying, hey, in my house, anybody could come from anywhere in the world and meet with me in my house, and you're in the way. You get in the way of that? I pity the fool who gets in the way <laughs> of the Lord and someone he wants to save. Amen? Amen? That's why Jesus said it would be better for you to have a, a millstone of concrete tied around your neck and tossed into the sea, it would be better, you would prefer that than what will happen to those who stumble people from finding God, who mess them up or put their foot out like that and trip them and, and make finding God harder, if not impossible. He says, that won't be good. Amen? It's the Ross Ryman version. (laughs) No good. (laughs) Not very good. All right, I love this about about this passage. A nice quote here. When the apostle states, I'm writing to tell you how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household... Paul's talking about more than manners and etiquette of the worshipers. These instructions go deep to the heart of who we are as God's people and what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. Purpose, function, and how the ministry of the gospel is to operate in us and through us according to the Lord of the church. And so... The goal of any pastor and the pastoral team is this. Make church conform to the best of your God-given abilities to the model that you find, the principles and protocols of First and Second Timothy, of the book of Acts. Implement that. Make it look like that as far as you are able. And so we see a church meeting in buildings, rented halls. So we do that. They're meeting in homes, sharing meals. So we do that. Uh, There's an emphasis on Christian fellowship and love. We do that. I see them worshiping together. We worship. 
And all kinds of prayers for all kinds of reasons, we do that. I see the ordaining of pastors and deacons, the only two positions recognized in the scriptures, and we do that. I see pastors in every New Testament church, you see an elder, overseer, or pastor, all the same word. We do that. I see sermons, altar calls, and church growth. I see baptisms, and I see sharing communion. I see benevolence ministries and helping the needy. I see evangelism outreaches. I see supporting missionaries. I see weekly offerings. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. I just throw that in there. (laughs) Well, people say, well, where do they always take offerings? Yeah, that's where they do it, right there. Uh, Church devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. So, you know, I might have left something out there, but, you know, we, we have it right in front of us. We don't need to complicate it. Make it simple and just follow his plan. He's head of household. So the last clause I love, that you're still looking at it. He, uh, here comes the reason, all this is important, uh, that we take pains to do church God's way. The meticulous, sobering process of choosing leaders that the first part of the chapter was about. The 15 qualities of the pastor, the nine for the deacon, the call to fight the good fight, and the rallying the church. Why is it all so important? Well, it's the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Wow. I'm glad we parked here. You start to think about that. There's one place in the entire world from God's point of view that you can get the truth, the truth that matters, the truth about God, the truth about heaven, the truth about death, the truth about sin, the truth about the purpose of human existence. There's only one place you'll find it, the pillar and foundation of all knowledge that means something is the church. And so he calls the church us. We are the church, by the way. He's not talking about a location of uh, walls, right? We are the church. We are called the church. The word ecclesia, it just means to be called out. So anybody who comes to Christ is a called out one, and then you are part of the church, and in a sense, you're a pillar of not your truth, not your experience, not what the world thinks a church should be, but of the truth, his truth, the gospel. Now, this metaphor that the church is a pillar of truth and the foundation in the world wouldn't be lost to those Ephesians because of the temple. I have a picture of it. The temple of Diana, if you are calling her by her Roman name, or Artemis, if you're using her Greek name, they worshipped her. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 pillars. They are six stories tall. They are encrusted with gems, some of them overlaid with gold. And so when he uses that word, they're all thinking, because he's using that word because he's making good use of the illustration of something they all know. He says, you want to talk about pillar? As the temple of Diana is for false religion and idolatry and immorality. It's a pillar unto that. The church of the living God is the pillar, the foundation of the truth. And here's how I want you to think about it. Each Christian is a pillar of the gospel truth, right? And together, we form a place, a place which is called the house of the Lord. And in that house, those pillars are are important, not just because they're beautiful, (laughs) because they hold up that roof. That's their job. That roof collapses, man. The people inside are going to be in trouble. The pillars, we form the house here. When you're in the midst, the ceiling, the roof protects you from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, death and destruction. In Revelation, the end of the world that takes seven years has 21 phases of God's judgment. What, the seven seals? 
the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. By the end of it, you have a planet that will not and cannot sustain life. Gone. The pillars form a house that has a roof that will shield you from the wrath of God. You will not experience that, period. We are not appointed to God's wrath, and that word does not mean hell. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. You will not die a second time when you're under the roof in God's house, supported by the church, the pillars that hold up the protection. When death comes, it will pass over you. Why? The strength of the pillars. Without those pillars, you cannot be saved. You'll be crushed by the weight of your own sin, by the guilt and the condemnation. You will perish, the Bible says. That's why Paul's saying, we're the pillars of truth. And without that, everything collapses. And when that collapses, you have a picture of this. London, the Apollo Theater, 700 people watching a show, 70 of them in the hospital, 7 of them or 10 of them critically injured because the roof gave way. That happens. Here's a face of somebody who survived it. They all survived miraculously. In the pews at Ephesus, under the false teachers who took away the pillars. The roof caved in. I know people who look like that because they sat under abusive, false myths, fables, as it's called in the Bible, and you got hurt. You may survive. If you're truly saved, you will survive, but you may Look like this for some of your Christian life. Why? Because some, sorry, Bozo told you from the pulpit that it's all about God wanting to make you wealthy and rich. Where's your faith? Why aren't you living your best life now? Because that's what it is. It's all about you and your health and your wealth. Or somebody told them, you know, hey, there's no such thing as hell. Hey, just chill out. And what about the sanctity of marriage? Hey, if two people love each other, that's what happens. It's the pillar, (laughs) the truth. Don't mess around with the truth. What did Jesus our Lord say? He said, to you, I give the keys of the kingdom. What's the keys to the kingdom? It's the truth, the gospel. That that we open the door, we say, this is the behavior that opens the door to you to eternal life. This is the behavior that closes those doors to you. That's exactly what that verse in Matthew 16 means. Mess with the truth, you mess with the gospel. Mess with the gospel, you mess with your soul. Amen? Amen. So that's why it's pretty important. So now to the second part. Uh, So the purpose of the letter... And really the purpose of our lives are revealed now. With the last little, verse 16 is a P.S. It's a wonderful inspiration to fight the good fight. And have you ever wondered what they sang in their worship services back in the day, 2,000 years ago? Well, this should be set aside. It's set off, I should say, in your Bibles because it's prose. It's creedal, as they call it. It's, it's, it's a part of uh, their creed, and they sing it. And so Paul is trying to bring everything together and just say, hey, look, everything you've been through with these false doctrines and false teachers and the, the split families and the pain, it's all worth it. Let's get back on track. Let's move forward because this is a great gospel. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? And he says, as we sing every Sunday, and now he's going to give the hymn. And we're going to go by through the hymn uh, just line per line because it's so awesome. Uh, But how he introduces this hymn is very interesting and it needs some clarity. So here's the verse, verse 16. Put that up there. 
He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he's going to quote the hymn that they all sing every Sunday. All right, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Now, here's what that means. The word mystery in Greek is not the same as English. In English, it means that we can't understand it. In, in Greek, it means it once was secret and now it's revealed. So here's what he's saying here. And by the way, the word godliness here, it's awkward translation. That's why it kind of doesn't make sense so much to us in English. It really is a way to describe all of our faith, godliness, the act of being godly, being made godly. That would be the gospel. In fact, the RSV has religion there. So here's what Paul's saying after what he's been through and he's psyching them up and you want to fight the good fight and make sure the guys have these kind of qualities and, and get over the hurt and the chaos. And because he says, without a doubt, the gospel, the whole revelation of Christianity Our faith is beyond awesome. It's mind-boggling. And then, that's what he's saying. He's saying, it's mind-boggling. And then he goes to the first line of the hymn. Think about what we have here, folks. No, we've been through a lot. Think about this. He appeared in a body. First line of their hymn. He says that, okay, let's bring everything to perspective, okay, here. We're asking you to do a lot here. There's meticulous work. There's a lot of effort fighting the good fight. But think about this. God of the universe, the God who speaks. Think about the universe, the expanse of it, the planets, the solar systems, the moons and the stars, just how it goes on for endless sea. He speaks spoke and created them and by his power they maintain their courses that being became one of us why out of love to save us this is a big deal that the God of the universe would become a man God appeared in a body Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's a great verse. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 just puts it really straight up. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells in a human body. In John chapter 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Philip is panicked. He says, Lord, show us, show us God the Father, and that'll settle our hearts. And Jesus says, John chapter 14, verse 9, Philip, have I been with you so long that still you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen God the Father. He appeared in a body through a girl. A human girl, the Holy Spirit overshadows her and God steps into her womb to become a God-man out of love to save us. Why? Well, because what was your penalty? Your penalty had to be paid. And when you pay somebody's penalty, you have to pay in the currency of the debt. The currency of the debt is yen. You pay in yen. If it's dollars, dollars. Rupees, rupees, right? What's the currency of your debt? Blood. A heartbeat that needs to stop. A back that needs to be beaten. For your rebellion, for my rebellion. So he says, I need blood. I need a heart. I need a back. So he, God, Universe maker comes down. John chapter 6, I came down from heaven. He says, they all freak out. We know your mother and your father. We know your sisters and your brothers. How could you say you came down? Because he did. He appeared in a body. And all the indignities of a human body, God had to endure. He had to get the flu. He had to have an upset stomach. All of those things. Why? Someone had to pay. 
what you owed, and what you owed was blood. So he needed a circulatory system. He needed lungs. To taste death, he shared in our humanity. Hebrews chapter 2. That's why he shared in our humanity. So that he could pay the bill. That's it. That's an awesome thing. So, you know, if anybody's in the pews at Ephesus saying, you don't understand what they, these guys put us through and my family went over there half over town and there's lies and slanders and he appeared in a body. This is bigger than them. He appeared in a body to get to you, to pay for your sins, to reconcile you. Behind those big brown eyes, and I say brown because most Jews have brown eyes, all right, you know, and uh, behind those big brown eyes is the God who made the universe. He appeared in a body. Second line, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this just means in case you think we have the wrong guy, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, proved that he was who he claimed to be. Vindicated just means cleared of some suspicion or some of your text has justified, right? He was acquitted. What? By the evidence of the miraculous powers. What did Nicodemus say? John chapter 3. Hey, we know you're from God because nobody could do what you do. Only God could do that. We know you're from God. Uh, I have a couple verses from John. Jesus said, you know, the miracles I do in my father's name, they speak for me. They vindicate me. And then he goes on to say in John 10, we have that as well, do not believe me unless I do what the Father does. God, the Father, Jehovah, Yahweh. But if I do it, even though you've got a problem with me, (laughs) believe the evidence, (laughs) right? So that you can be saved, that you may know and understand that the Father, God, is in me and I'm in the Father. If you claim to be the one who can give every human soul eternal life, if you claim to say, and he did, whoever believes in me shall never die, if you claim to offer every human heart rest, that wherever two or three people gather together in your name, if you claim that to be true, wherever they are in the world, I'll be there if they come together in my name. If you make those kind of claims, then you better be able to walk on water. You better be able to speak to a hurricane and tell it, uh, shut up, and have it just go (laughs) like that, right? You better be able to speak to a devil's voice and say, who are you? It says, legion, for we are many. Whatever. (laughs) So much for my scary voice. At least 2,000 demons, he, he just commands, get out. Vindicated by the Spirit, by casting out the devil, and if someone brings you to, brings a dead body your way, you claim to be the Messiah. You ought to be able to say to a corpse, young man, I say to you, arise, and have the guy sit up. Luke chapter 7. <laughs> Vindicated by the Spirit. So he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. C.S. Lewis called that the trilemma. Right? So liar, vindicated. No man ever spoke like this. The guards sent to arrest him. <laughs> they come back. They, they go to arrest him. And Jesus is teaching. And they're like standing there. they come back and they say where is he and they go "Uh, have you heard him (laughs) no one ever spoke like this man does so he's not a liar liars can't talk like that lunatic ah another these are not the sayings of a crazy man right vindicated you're left with one option because he was vindicated by the spirit he is who he claimed to be Jesus said, look, whatever your hang-up is, I gave you proof. Believe. Scene of angels. Love that line. This gospel isn't about some old prophet in 
some obscure part of the woods and decided, hey, I'm going to start a religion. I'm going to do a few miracles. I'm going to write a, a little book and I'm going to have followers. This is about God becoming a man and proving it with this power and that, listen, all of heaven is involved. All the celestial beings are part and parcel with him in it. Scene of angels. It's seraphim and cherubim and and cherubim and and the archangels of God and thrones and powers and dominions and authorities in unseen realms. The whole unseen world is involved in this gospel, in this house of God. Scene of angels, of course. They announced his birth. Lit up the skies of Bethlehem. There they were, right? They guided Joseph and Mary in and out of dangerous time. The angels show up when? When Jesus is battling the devil himself after being tempted 40 days. The angels minister to him. When he sprawls himself in prayer, the garden of Gethsemane, when the weight, the sins of the world would be laid upon him, dripping drops of sweat like blood, the angels are there by his side, strengthening him. And on that morning, he accomplished what he was sent to do, what he came to do. The angels, again, there they are. And before that even happened, Jesus said, as he's going to the cross, Peter wants to defend him. Put away the sword. Man, don't you know that I have 144,000 angels at my beck and call? This is about some, some guy wakes up one day and decides to write a book and have followers. This is about the living God who comes into the human race, who is vindicated by the Spirit with all kinds of signs and wonders. And the whole effort of the angelic hosts focused on this grand spectacle of God of the universe becoming one of them, the ones who hate him, to reconcile. Scene of angels. Oh, and it wasn't just that. How about the resurrection? There they are again. Yeah, here we are again. This is part of his plan. It's part of our plan. We're in on this too. And that's so awesome. How about his ascension? Is there any part of his ministry the angels are not involved in? As he's going up in glory, angels appear on his left, on his right. This same Jesus, though it looks like he's leaving and going somewhere. Oh, no, men, he'll be back. He'll be back. And with us, they come with him. Scene of angels. This is a big thing. This is a big thing. I have a scripture here. We'll go back to this. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and a loud voice they're singing praises to God. Scene of angels. This is a big deal Paul's saying to the Ephesians. God becoming a man, these angels, all of the celestial beings that exist are with him and long to look into these things. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The angels are desirous to look into this. How could God become a human being for them? Scene of angels. It goes on. Preached among the nations. It's not a little isolated thing for a few people. It's a little Jewish thing. For 1,500 years, it was Jewish, but it got preached to the entire world. Paul's reminding him, them all. This isn't about Ephesus, people. This is about the whole world. This is how the whole world gets saved because it is God's will that none perish but all come to repentance. God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. From 3 to 12 to 120 to the world. And 
What he's saying really there, what, what's important there for us to take from that is, is that the gospel is the answer for the entire world. And that is our obligation. It's not just about us. It's about this beautiful gospel that God has in mind the entire world. And then he, the next line is, he's believed on in the world. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Lord had a mission. Luke 19 and verse 10 says that the Son of Man, the Son of God, came to seek and save the lost, right? Mission accomplished. He was believed on in the world. That when you get to heaven, you are going to see, as far as the eye can see, trillions of people who believed on him in the world and now reign in heaven on thrones where we're headed as well. He was believed on in the world. In other words, it's working. It happened. And was believed on in the world means, listen, folks, you little Christians at Ephesus, you seem like you're the only Christians around. Oh, wait till you get to heaven. Wait till you get to heaven. And you see the entire universe filled, filled, You don't get to heaven and say, oh, you know, a few of us made it. Thank the good Lord. You know, (laughs) sorry, that was my Jewish side coming up. (laughs) You're going to get to heaven and say, I had no idea. I had no idea. As far as you can imagine, people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group is there. And the, the people who reject, who are standing there, before the great white throne, and they see the whole universe, man, got it except you. That's how it's going to seem because he was believed on in the world. Murderers became missionaries. Prostitutes became preachers of righteousness. Mary Magdalene. Party animals who wasted their life until they were 20 years old ended up preaching the gospel that they once tried to ridicule and destroy and doing some good because someone believed on him in the world. Someone believed on him in the world. The lost were found. Murderers become wonderful Christians. The immoral became clean and controlled, self-controlled. Drunks became disciples. The dead were raised, captives set free, blind eyes opened, guilty forgiven. The condemned were pardoned because they believed on him in this world. And they're there now. This is a little bit of Ephesus, Santa Rosa, Katati, you know. Oh, I've been hurt and I can't go on and all of that. He's saying, look at this huge thing that somehow, by God's grace, you stumbled into it. How fortunate, how blessed are you, sir, and, and ma'am? How blessed are you? They, they, you've got this truth, this gospel that God became a man. You know the truth. You live the truth. You've been set free. You're going to live forever. And you're a part of the angelic host's mission with the Son of God and the trillions of faces. You're one of those faces. Like we sing every week, Paul saying, come on, let's remember. <laughs> Great is this awesome revelation called the gospel, called Christianity. That's what he's saying. The last line here, I love it, and he was taken up in glory. <laughs> he prevailed. Oh, Yeah. Oh, Satan tried to stop this. Did you you read in the beginning in Genesis? It was so bad, the Lord had to bring a worldwide flood. And the world was spared by eight souls. Because Satan knew, through one of these people will come my conqueror. I must corrupt them. And something happened there. That was big. But eight people survived. And Israel, time and again, was this close from being wiped out. If Israel is gone in the Old Testament, you don't have a savior. 
because he was working. Destroy the Jews and you've destroyed the Savior. Kill all the babies born under the two-year prophecy and you'll kill the Messiah. Well, didn't work. The enemy trying to tempt him. Hey, turn the stones to bread. God will understand, you know? Judas tried to betray him. The Jews tried to get rid of him and the Romans tried to kill him. But what do we sing? He was taken up in glory, victorious, because the seed of the woman came straight through all those generations and found its way into Mary's womb, a relative of King David. And out comes the God-man. And through all of those dangers and all that adversity to stop Israel, to stop the world, to stop Mary and Joseph, to stop him, he dies He's buried, he's resurrected for the sins of the world. Mission accomplished. He was believed on in the world. His people are safe and will be safe. And he ascends up in victory. And it's also a shout out to what goes up (laughs) must come down. And that's exactly what the angels say at the end. Oh, like I said, Don't be thinking that he's on his way out like, oh, we're not going to see him again. But listen, when you're taken up in glory, it's a a pointing to the second time. What it's saying is that there were 300 prophecies that predicted his first coming. And he was successful. Mission accomplished, taken up in glory. There are three times as many direct prophecies about the second coming that will come to pass. He will appear and he will come again. That's a shout out to the second coming. He was taken up in glory. So, dear people of God, Paul is saying, been through a lot this church at Ephesus. And what Christian in this day and age has not been? You just tell me, who hasn't been uh, hurt by a church. Who? I was crushed by a teacher, a pastor. When I was 26 years old, I said to my wife, I will never go into a door of a church again. I said, I will never be a minister or a pastor. After that, no way. I was on the couch on Sunday mornings. Not for long but it was. (laughs) What got a hold of me? Great is the revelation of this gospel that God became a man to come to find me, to save me, to give me eternal life. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He's believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory and from glory he shall come again. Oh, come on. That's, it. That's bigger than my little hurt feelings. I can get over it if I remember the vastness, the greatness, the miraculous nature of what I've stumbled into. That You can't even have words for it. You sing about it. We don't even know what we're singing about half of the time. So awesome. And you too. You know, put that, that, that face on again. The girl's the lady's face. I remember Josh Jones. He came to church 10 years ago. He sat in the back. I saw this guy always sat in the back. Wouldn't talk much. In and out, straight. For about a year. I said, hey, what's up? Who are you? What's going on? Came out of a church guy was a false teacher really hurt him I could tell you things that he taught and did that are hard to believe in this county I know people like that and I've been like that but you know what 
oh, there's something bigger. There's something more powerful. There's a reason to, 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 to get cleaned up and to get healed up, to pick ourselves up and to walk forward. There's a reason. And the reason is, oh, that God appeared in a body. Oh, he was vindicated by the spirit. He was believed on in the world. What's the next one? He was believed on in the world. He was, yeah, preached to the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Yeah. We can do this. We can go forward with that kind of motivation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Oh, Lord, it's just all worth it. <laughs> it's whatever hurdle we have to jump with. Whatever wound that needs to heal, whatever way we need to cooperate that seems challenging, oh, it's so worth it because of this gospel and the truth. So keep us living in the truth, for the truth, and by the truth. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.